There's a little trout stream called Riley Creek over west of us in Oregon that uh, has an interesting history. It's named for uh, an old hard rock miner who prospected uh, in that area back in the 1870s. His name was Judge Riley. And uh, he spent his whole life trying to grub a living out of, the, out of the soil. And as far as I know, never made a strike. His uh, entire life was unrewarded until one morning, very early, his partner got up and worked his way up uh, the little, little creek and discovered an enormous uh, load. Uh, came running back into camp, began to shake Riley, said, wake up, Riley, wake up, Riley, we're rich. Wake up, Riley, we're rich. Uh, the only problem was that uh, Riley had died during the night in his sleep. Now, I know uh, a lot of men, in fact, a lot of my friends, who live the life of Riley, uh, who, who spend their entire lives trying to to dig wealth out of the out of the soil, trying to provide for their families and and for themselves, and then in the end, uh, they die. And I ask myself, what possible meaning can there be in a life where uh, we all end up under the ground, pushing up daisies? How can we find something that uh, will give significance to our existence when everyone is destined to die? Uh, as the poet puts it, I have a rendezvous with death, and I will not fail uh, that rendezvous. Now, Peter has a good word on this subject, and I'd like to have you turn with me to the first chapter of uh, his first uh, letter, 1 Peter 1. And I want to read four verses. Now, remember, uh, the Peter who writes this epistle is an older, wiser, softer man than we knew him in the Gospels. Uh, a much more profoundly converted man, to use Jesus' word, and therefore better able to encourage uh, his brothers and, and sisters. And uh, this is a great word, an encouraging word. And since this is Father's Day, I want to leave this with you fathers. Because I want to tell you, the, uh, the greatest thing that you can do for your wife and your children, your family, your colleagues, the people around you, is to live out the truth that's in this passage. Now, I want, to, I want to begin reading with verse 13. Therefore, Peter writes, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. For it is written, be holy, because I am holy. Uh, now, there, there are two main ideas in this text. Grammarians would say there are two finite verbs, two verbs that carry out the action of this uh, particular passage. One is to set your hope. That's one word. In, uh, in the Greek language, set your hope fully on the grace to be given you, the gift to be given you when, when our Lord is revealed. The second is be holy, as our text puts it, or better, become holy. Now those are the two parameters, the two fixed reference points around which everything revolves in this passage. 
set your hope and become holy. All the other verbs are helping verbs or participles and ought to be translated this way. Preparing your minds for action, being self-controlled, set your hope fully on the gift that's coming when our Lord comes. Not being conformed to the evil desires you once had, be holy in all that you do. In other words, Peter is saying, get your mind right. Uh, cinch up your, your thoughts, focus and concentrate and discipline your thinking on these two issues. And, and don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Don't think the way secular society thinks. Think along these lines. Set your hope fully on heaven. And while you're here on earth, be holy. Now, see, that speaks to our destiny. Our destiny is fixed. And it also speaks to our present duty. It not only talks about the here and now, it gives us a point of reference about the hereafter. And really, in these four verses, Peter sums up for us our primary duty in this world. To set our hope on the gift that's coming and to be holy as we live out our life uh, here on earth. Now, I want to talk first about hope. Uh, unfortunately, the, uh, our English term hope has in it a note of uncertainty and contingency, a sort of wistful uh, thinking. Emily Dickinson says, hope is a feathered thing that perches in the soul. In other words, it's flighty. It comes and, and goes. Uh, you know, it's, I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope. But it has no, uh, no uh, element of certainty in it. I heard a, a story recently about a very attractive elderly woman who lived in a retirement center, and uh, she was uh, pushing her little wheeled apparatus down the corridor, rocking and uh, walking and rolling. And uh, uh, up the corridor comes this very uh, handsome old gent who had just moved into the into the home. He was a new resident there, and she spied him, and she she perks up and she says, "My," she says, "You look just like my fourth husband." And he says, you've had four husbands? She says, no, I've only had three. <clears throat> well, uh, see, that's wistful thinking. That, that's hope. But that's not the hope that, that the Bible is, is talking about. Hope in the Bible is a confident, calm, certain, sure expectation. For those that are in Christ, heaven is a is a sure thing. Um, we know it is because of what Jesus said. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Remember the context in which that was said. He, he was talking to a, a grieving woman who had just lost her brother. And he said to her, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, even though he dies, will live again. And he who lives and believes in me will never really die. He says, do you believe this? See, uh, it's, it's tied not to wistful thinking or what we hope to be, but to the certainty of Jesus' words. He slew death by dying. See, the reason we die is not simply because our bodies wear out. Death is not just our lot, it's our sentence. Death is a result of sin. Uh, sin came into the world and, and death followed. And when our Lord went to the cross, He bore in His own body our sins and paid the penalty for our sins, and the Father raised him from the dead, and therefore we no longer have to pay the penalty for our sin. Yes, we die, but we rise again 
as our Lord did. See, and that's a sure thing. That's not something that we wish for or something that we hope for in the English sense of that word. It's something that is absolutely certain, leaves us with a calm assurance. Uh, a number of years ago, Carolyn and I were flying around on one of our IMM trips with Dr. J. Oswald Sanders, wonderful old saint who was at that time about 92. And uh, he has written a number of books, 40 or 50 books over his lifetime. And, and as we were flying around the state, uh, he kept scribbling on this uh, yellow legal pad. And I asked him one day, leaned over in the plane and, and said, uh, uh, what are, you, are you writing another book? And he said, yes. And I said, what's it on? And his eyes twinkled and he said, uh, my next destination. And I said, oh, Riggins, Lewiston? And he says, no, uh, heaven, heaven. And uh, about six months, eight months after that, he passed away in his sleep and he arrived at his next destination. Well, that's that calm assurance that you and I can have because our Lord made it certain by his death in rising again. Uh, that's what Faith Popcorn, in her best-selling book, Clicking, calls anchoring. Finding something solid to which we can anchor our life as we look toward the future. Now, she's thinking, of, of course, of, of business activities. But in terms of, of our own understanding of what comes after life, that's our anchor. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, even though he died. Uh, will not really die. He'll live again. Now, uh, when we once we grasp that fact, there is great joy. Uh, G.K. Chesterton said, "We can face death with colossal joy." I like that that expression. Ray Stedman used to tell a story about a uh, an elderly man who was dying of heart disease, and uh, every day his heart got a little weaker and a little weaker. But every time he would come right to death's door, he would get so excited about the thought of heaven and, and seeing Jesus that his old, frail old body would become adrenalized and his heart would begin to beat stronger and he would rally and, and he would live through another day. And Ray's comment was it was the thought of dying that kept him living so long. Well, understanding what Jesus has, has done gives us that sort of, of joy. We do not need to fear death. I have been a Christian so long, almost all of my life, I actually became a believer when I was four or five years old, that I really don't know what it's like to live without hope. Because from my earliest days, my mother talked to me about, about heaven. So I, I have never really had a, the fear of death. But there are a lot of people that do. A lot of my friends are scared to death of dying. They don't talk about it much, but they're frightened out of their, out of their wits. Uh, Morley Safer was interviewing uh, Woody Allen on a 60-minute segment not too long ago. And uh, he asked him, he said, Woody, do you want to live forever in the minds of your fans? And Allen said, no, I want to live, together. I want to live forever in my apartment. Uh, we don't want to achieve immortality in our work, we want to achieve immortality by not dying. But the problem is, we die. Everyone dies. As the poet says, I have a rendezvous with death, and I shall not miss that, that rendezvous. Uh, dying is what we do. Uh, Tom Howard, who was a professor of theology at Gordon College, uh, 
wrote this, like a hen before a cobra, we find ourselves incapable of doing anything at all in the presence of the very thing that seems to call for the most drastic and decisive action. The disquieting thought that stares at us like a fact with a freezing grin is that there is, in fact, nothing we can do. Say what we will, dance how we will. We will soon enough be a heap of ruined feathers and bones, indistinguishable from the rest of the ruins that lie about. It will not appear to matter in the slightest whether we have met the enemy with equanimity, uh, shrieks, or trumped-up gaiety. There we will be. That's the fact. That's one of those hard facts that we just keep running our heads up against. One of these days, we're going to die. And we have these constant reminders. Some little bolt fails in an airplane, and, and the thing crashes, and, and some beloved friend uh, dies. Uh, Pascal says we're like condemned criminals, uh, incarcerated in a, in a room from which one after another our friends are taken out and, and executed, and we see our own fate in theirs. That's why I've always felt there, there's so much reality at a, at a funeral, because that's, you know, that's where you have to face things as they really are. The wise man in Proverbs says that. There's more reality at a funeral than there is at a party, because there no one is great. There we face the fact that no one is going to live forever. Death is a, is a sure thing, and uh, somebody, somebody has to do something about it. Uh, C.S. Lewis talks about a woman that he knew, a friend of his, who said she didn't worry about death because by the time she got there, someone will have done something about it. Well, uh, and whoever, whoever did something about it would certainly earn a, a Nobel uh, Prize. But uh, you see, Jesus did. He did something about it. Paid the price for our sins, and he has given us now the, the promise of eternal life. Uh, I'm sure you all know that this last year, Carl Sagan, the, um, <clears throat> uh, the Cornell astronomer, uh, passed away. He, he contracted a uh, fatal disease. He knew that he didn't have long to live. And he wrote a number of articles during that time, and one of which he said, I would love to believe that when I die, I will live again. That some thinking, feeling, remembering part of me will continue. But as much as I want to believe that, and despite the ancient and worldwide cultural traditions that assert an afterlife, I know of nothing to suggest that it's more than wistful thinking. How sad, how sad. If you just could have believed what Jesus said, I and the resurrection and the life. You see, there is, after all, pie in the sky, by and by. Uh, Kim Farmer, whom I think all of you know, used to work at a local restaurant that was famous for its pies. And she developed what she called a, called a theology of pie. She had a whole series of theological metaphors that were tied into to pies. And uh, she, she would talk about how uh, you know, people could be so irascible and difficult and moody and morose in a meal. And then when dessert time came, she would walk over to the table and she would say, anybody for pie? And immediately they would brighten up, you know, and they'd, They'd get excited, and life would come back into their conversation and so forth. Well, it's because I think intuitively we all hope that there's pie in the sky by and by. But there is. You see, for us, it's not just wistful thinking. It's the real thing. Now, I want to try something this morning. I, I, I want you to imagine that you're a little child. 
For some of us, that's not too hard. Uh, and we should get over our fear of being childlike anyway. A number of years ago, uh, some friends here in, in the church introduced me to a Christian author by the name of Mary Trumbull Slauson. She wrote back in the 1800s. She lived in Franconia Notch, which is that uh, part of New Hampshire made famous by Nathaniel Hawthorne's The Great Stone Face. And she writes in the idiom of the semi-literate people who lived in in that valley and at that time. It's a little hard to read, so you'll have to bear with me. But uh, uh, she's a great storyteller. And one of the stories she tells is about a little boy who was scared of dying. Now, I want you to imagine that you're a little child and that your mother or father or grandfather or grandmother or uh, someone is reading this story to you and uh, look at it through the eyes of a child. Once there was a boy that was dreadful scared of dying. Some folks is that way, you know. They ain't never done it to know how it feels, and they're scared. And this boy was that way. He weren't very rugged. His health was sort of slim, and, and maybe that made him think about such things more. At any rate, he was terrible scared of dying. It was a long time ago, this was, the time when posies and critters could talk so folks could know what they was a-saying. And one day, as this boy, his name was Reuben, I forget his other name, as Reuben was sitting under a tree, an elm tree, crying, he heard a little bit of a voice. Not squeaky, you know, but small and thin and soft-like. And he see t'was a posy talking. T'was one of them posies they called Benjamins with three-cornered whitey bloats with a mite of pink in them. And it talked in a kind of pinky-white voice, and it said, what, what are you crying for, Reuben? And he says, because I'm scared of dying. Well, what do you think? That posy just laughed. The most curious little pinky white laugh it was, and it says, the Benjamin says, Dying? Scared of dying? Why die myself every year of my life? Die yourself, says Reuben. You're fooling. You're alive this minute. Of course I be, says the posy, but that's neither here nor there. I've died every year since I can remember. Don't it hurt, says the boy. No, it don't, says the posy. It's real nice. You see, you get kind of tired of holding up your head straight and looking pert and wide awake and tired of the sun shining so hot and the winds are blowing you to pieces and the bees are taking your honey. So it's nice to feel sleepy and kind of hang your head down and get sleepier and sleepier and then you're dropping off. Then you wake up in just the nicest time of year and come up and look around. Why, I like to die. I do. But some ways that didn't help Reuben much. I ain't a posy, he thought to himself, and maybe I wouldn't come back up. Well, another time he was sitting on a stone in the lower pasture crying again, and he heard another curious little voice. It weren't like the posy's voice, but but twas a little woolly, soft, fuzzy voice, and, and he see twas a caterpillar talking to him. And the caterpillar says in his fuzzy little voice, What you crying for, Reuben? And the boy, he says, I'm powerful scared of dying, that's why. And that fuzzy caterpillar, he laughed, dying, he says. I'm dying to die myself. All my family, he says, die every once in a while. And when they wake up, they're just splendid. Got wings and fly about and live on honey and things. Well, I wouldn't miss it for nothing. But somehow, that didn't chirk up Reuben much. I ain't a caterpillar, he says, and maybe I wouldn't wake up at all. Well, there's lots of other things. Talked to that boy and tried to help him. Trees and posies and grass and crawling things. There was always a dying and living. 
Reuben thought it didn't help him any, but I guess it did a little. For he couldn't help thinking of what they what they'd said. But he was scared all the time. And one summer he began to fail up faster and faster, and he got so tired he could hardly hold his head up, but he was scared all the same. And one day he was lying on the bed looking out the east window, and the sun kept a shining in his eyes till he shut him up and he fell asleep. He had a real good nap. And when he woke up, he went out to take a walk. And he began to think of what the posies and trees and critters had said about dying and how they laughed at his being scared of it. And he says to himself, why, someone says, I don't feel so scared today. And just then, what do you think he'd done? Why, he met an angel. He'd never seen one before, but he knowed it right off. And the angel says, ain't you happy, little boy? And Reuben says, well, I would be, only I've always been so dreadful scared of dying. And it must be terrible, curious, he says, to be dead. And the angel says, why, you be dead. And he was. <laughs> I read that thing and I just laughed out loud. You know, she, she's arguing from nature. And that's one of the metaphors that God has just put all around us. You know. Spring's a wonderful time and everything comes alive. And the posies begin to spring into life. And butterflies begin to come out. And just little reminders that God has, has placed in all of nature that we're going to live again. T.S. Eliot, before he became a believer, when he was still a, a once-born man, as he describes himself, uh, said in one of his poems, April is the cruelest month. He just couldn't deal with it because there are all these hints that you could live again, but he didn't have any assurance. So nature hints at it, but as C.S. Lewis says, all the leaves of the New Testament rustle with the hope that we can live again. Over and over again, the scriptures tell us, Jesus is, is the resurrection and the life, and you believe in him, you'll never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Now, let's talk about uh, holiness. That's the second uh, issue with which Peter is uh, concerned. Uh, holiness is a scary word to a lot of people. It conjures up visions of uh, hoary, hair-shirted old prophets or people that have that look on, her fa on their face that indicates that someone somewhere might be having some fun. Uh, Face so long that it'd make a good frontispiece on Victor Hugo's Les Miserables, that sort of thing. But uh, it's a better word than that. It's a good word. Uh, the The word is found all over the ancient world in almost all of the uh, Semitic languages of that day. It occurs in, in some of the pagan religions. It refers to people that dedicated themselves to the gods, the Vestal Virgins and others, that 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 had a different set of of moral values than people around them. And then when it came into the Bible, into the Old Testament, and began to be used, it had a much stronger moral and ethical content. It really had to do not with so much of being set aside as it did of being morally different from the world, being righteous, being godlike, uh, being good in, in the New Testament sense of that word. As a matter of fact, it's probably best explained as a lifestyle that we could only call beautiful. It's, it's a kind of winsome behavior that is so wonderfully attractive. It's hard to define, but you can see it in our Lord. 
Uh, one of the sons of Asaph, in predictive tribute to the Messiah, said, He is the most beautiful man in the world. Uh, that's a great description of our Lord. And we use that idiom in, in, in our own uh, culture. We talk about a woman being, uh, being beautiful. Or, or what a beautiful guy, we say, in talking about a man. We're not always thinking about externals, but the, but the inner person. They're, they're beautiful people. That's what holiness means. Now, the Bible talks about the beauty of holiness. I love that expression. The world turns that around and talks about the holiness of beauty. What matters is having incredible abs and hard bodies and all that sort of thing. But, but what Scripture tells us, what, what our Lord tells us, what all of truth tells us is that what really matters is that internal beauty that gets more beautiful with every passing day. Now, you know, that's an incredible encouragement to those of us that are ugly. Um, you can be as ugly as sin, but it doesn't matter. You can be beautiful within. That, that's the emphasis that, that Scripture takes. Though the outward man is perishing, Paul says, the inward man is being renewed uh, day by day. Uh, Peter has a, a number of descriptions in his book that you'll be looking at later. There's one that I particularly like in chapter 3, verse 4. Uh, pardon me, verse 8. Peter says, all of you live in harmony with, with one another. Be sympathetic. Love one another like brothers. Be compassionate and humble. Don't repay with evil with evil or insult with, with insult but with a blessing. You, you come across someone like that, and believe me, that, that's a beautiful person. And that's what, that's what holiness is. Now, let me just make a comment or two about this passage the first thing I want you to note is that holiness is commanded. Holy is what we're supposed to be. Uh, no equivocation about that in the Bible. You'll notice that, that Peter here is quoting the book of Leviticus, in which that command occurs. Be holy, because I am holy. And then he repeats it, reiterates it here. Be holy, because I am holy. That's never been rescinded. One mark of a child of God is that he or she is, is obedient to the Father. It's what he describes us as obedient children. Be holy uh, as your Father is, uh, is holy. Now, uh, you should understand, though, that there is, there is no such thing in human form as absolute holiness. Only God is holy. The, the, the men sang holy, holy, holy from the book of Isaiah. Whenever something is repeated three times in the Old Testament, that's an idiom for absolute. Ab God is absolutely holy. There's no unholiness in him. Well, we'll never attain to that sort of holiness. That's beyond our grasp. Peter does not say... Be as holy as God is, he says, be holy as God is holy. So it's always a relative thing until we see his face. And then we'll be transformed into his likeness and we'll be as holy as, as he is. But while we're here on this earth, we will struggle. Uh, it, it takes time. You can't be holy in a hurry. Uh, it's sometimes a, a very arduous, difficult process. 
Uh, we need to be comfortable with ourselves while we're, while we're in process. You know, we all wish that there was some, uh, some magic formula that, that we, you know, some, some word we could mumble like abracadabra or, or shazam, and suddenly we would turn into a more holy version of ourselves. It doesn't work like that. My experience has been that you, you defeat sin in one area and, and, it, and it charges pell-mell at you in another. Uh, you expel one demon this week and seven more come back next week. Uh, you recognize sin in, in one part of your life and it shows up in another guise, in, a, in another place, in another form. The habits we conquer in one, one arena turn around and conquer us in and another, we seem to be constantly striving against ten- tendencies against which we make almost no impression. It's a struggle. Holiness is not something that we enter into quickly or easily. It's a process, but it happens. And, and my experience is that some of the holiest people I know are not even aware of it. As a matter of fact, as you grow toward God, uh, you become more and more conscious of sin within your life. That's why Paul would say at the very end of his life, I'm the chief of sinners. Because you begin to look at things that before were, were simply picadillo, small things that seem to be small things. They loom much larger as you get older. See. So what, what I want you to say, uh, see is that this is not something that automatically happens just because you have put yourself into God's hands. But it is something that God longs for and he wants for you. And he will produce in you if you're willing. Now the question is, how do you get holy? Well, uh, suffering plays a part, believe me. Uh, Peter even says in this passage, in this book, He who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now he's not talking about ceasing in any absolute sense. He's just saying that, that those that have suffered in the flesh have learned to deal with various aspects of sin uh, in their life. You know, sometimes we have to do without. We have to do without our name, our reputation, our wealth, our home, our children, our family, our husbands, our wives, our health, whatever. But all of that pushes us toward God so that as we get closer to Him and as we rely more and more upon Him and as we love Him more and worship Him more, more of Him begins to rub off on us. The other thing that I would say is that you really have to want it very much. You have to want to be holy. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's the first order of business is to want it. Now let me say something that may sound fairly harsh, but but I need to say it. If you don't want holiness, you probably are not a Christian. John said in, in, in his little book, that which is born of, of God, that is the new nature, does not sin. Now what he means by that is that the nature that God has planted in us through the new birth cannot put up with sin. It can't justify it and defend it. It wants to do better all the time. Now that's the mark of a believer. They hunger and thirst for righteousness. And if you don't, my dear friend, you may not be a believer. And you need to put yourself in, in our Lord's hands And ask Him for that desire. He will give you the will and the desire to follow Him. So that's the first thing, to want it very much. The second thing is to ask for it. Holiness doesn't just happen because we we try harder. No, no, it happens because our Lord is 
shaping us and molding us and, and doing something within us by his, own, uh, by his own power. And then we need to spend time with his written word. That would be my word to you fathers for this coming year. Do you have a time when you sit down with the Lord in the quietness of your house and your heart and you sit at his feet and listen to him and what he has to say to you? You know, the, uh, the people that deal in spiritual formation, spiritual masters, they call them, talk about spiritual reading. We evangelicals talk about Bible study. They talk about spiritual reading. And uh, I, I like that, that turn of phrase because I think that's what we're doing. We try to link head, heart, spirit together as, as we read the Word. We evangelicals tend to preoc- get preoccupied with words and, and uh, grammar and syntax and the meaning of words when what God wants us to do is, is look at the meaning of the words for us. We need to try to understand the text. Yes, use our head. But then we need to ask, what does this mean for me in terms of my behavior? What sin is this addressing? What habit is being rebuked? What pattern of life needs to be corrected? Uh, what in my past needs to be cleaned up? And then we need to do the next thing that God asks you to do. Whatever it is, just begin to do it. But we must rely not only on the written word, but also on the living word. When you, uh, After you spend that time in worship and prayerful reading of Scripture as you go out into the world, just take our Lord with you. He's the most holy companion you could ever imagine. And just keep relying upon Him, asking Him in every circumstance to manifest the holiness of, of God. Now, uh, you see, the, the, these are the two issues that we need to be concerned with. Heaven is on ahead. It's a lock. If you're in Christ... Your destiny is fixed. You don't need to worry about what happens after death. All of us are scared of dying in the sense that we've never been there before and we don't know what to expect, but we don't need to dread it or fear it. The toxic sting, as Paul says, uh, has been taken out of death. So the hereafter is taken care of. The question is, what are we going to do here? And the emphasis that Peter makes is on living out a holy life. By the grace of God. That links heaven and earth. Uh, some, some of you know that I used to run, and uh, at least up till about 10 years ago, my knees ran, went out. So I started walking. And uh, uh, here about, I don't know, three or four months ago, I decided I, my knees felt pretty good. Maybe I can, maybe I can run again. So I started jogging. And I, uh, we, our house backs up to Winstead Park, and we have a third of a mile track there. And I walked a lap, and then I slowly jogged a lap. And I thought, oh, that feels pretty good. My knees weren't hurting. And so I picked up the pace a little bit, you know, and jogged a second lap. And what I didn't know is that Carolyn was watching me out of the window. So I, I you know, I, I, man, I thought I was Carl Lewis revisited. I was, <laughs> I was thinking about uh, looking into a seniors event in the Olympics or something. Been jogging into the house, feeling really good. And, 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 and Carolyn says, I, uh, I, I saw you were running. I said, that's right. She said, I got this, this sad look in her eyes. And she said, oh. She said, I'm sorry. She had seen the look of pain on my face and the, my feeble efforts to, to try to run, you know. And uh, that was the end of my comeback. 
But you know what popped into my mind? Uh, God uses things that he put, pl- puts away in the back of your mind. What I thought of was Paul's words. Physical exercise profits a little. But godliness is profitable for all things, having the promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. You have the best of both worlds. Holiness now and the hope of heaven ahead. Let's pray. Grant to us, Lord, that assurance that uh, our destiny is fixed. And give to us the grace that we need to live holy, godly, righteous lives in this age. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.